Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about telic and ecbatic prophecy. What's the difference? How is prophecy used, especially in the New Testament? I mean, you have the Gospel of Matthew, and it's just filled with, so that this will be fulfilled. We're going to go through a few of these, and we're going to go turn to their references, and we're going to figure out how prophecy is used in the New Testament, often by Jesus, the apostles, even Paul, just the Jewish mindset in the day, and how they use prophecy to prove their theology. I remember in college, I was at this Bible study group, and the pastor who was leading the Bible study, he pulls out this big, thick paper. Like, like there's like probably 10 papers in this little bundle. And he says, these are all the prophecies that were fulfilled through Jesus. And that is how we know Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is real. But I've often wondered about that because a lot of those prophecies, if you turn back to those references... They're absolutely not prophecies. You can't detect any prophecy there. And this, to no end, frustrates critics of Christianity. Everyone should go out and they should buy the book Atheism, The Case Against God. And this is by George H. Smith. And he writes, in addition to this, he's talking about prophecy here. And he's talking about an intentional mistranslation of maiden or young woman or virgin of the Isaiah 7.14 passage. But He says, in addition to this, the entire intent of the Old Testament passage has been mutilated by the author of Matthew. It is evident to anyone who cares to examine the entire context of Isaiah 7.14. Taken in its full context, beginning with 7.1, this child is meant to be a sign to Ahaz, king of Judah, that he will not be defeated in battle by Pekah, king of Israel, and Rezin, king of Syria. The birth of this child is reported in chapter 8 of Isaiah. In no way can it be construed as a reference to the future birth of the Messiah, much less the birth of Jesus 750 years later. The author of Matthew was very free in ignoring context. Yeah, we, we turn back and we read Isaiah, and everything that George H. Smith says is true. This does not look like a prophecy of a future birth of a Messiah. The child is born... In the context, this is definitely a prophecy to the people of that time for social political events at that time. This is not a prophecy. And so how is Matthew using this? Why does he think he could get away with using this quote to predict, to prophesy the birth of Jesus? Reading Matthew's words, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is using this in context of Joseph's conversation with an angel about Christ's birth, Jesus' birth. George H. Smith continues, For another astounding prophecy, turn to Matthew 2.15, which refers to Jesus' alleged flight into Egypt to escape Herod's mass slaughter of the children. A slaughter, incidentally, for which there is no corroborating historical evidence, even among the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, who reported the atrocities of Herod in meticulous detail. Joseph and Jesus remained there until the death of Herod. We're quoting now Matthew. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Observe the context of this prophecy, and prophecies in quotes, 
which was taken from Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This passage and those that follow clearly indicate that the son refers to Israel during its exodus from Egypt, such as Exodus 4.22, where Israel is again referred to as God's son. This prophecy, quotes, refers to a past event. The author of Matthew, who would have us believe that Hosea 11.1 predicts a future event, is again very brazen in his distortion. These are only two examples out of many similar cases. Time and time again, Old Testament passages are distorted, misinterpreted, and quoted out of context in an attempt to manufacture prophecies for Jesus. We'll continue quoting George H. Smith. Christians sometimes counter these objections by arguing that the cited Old Testament passages have a double meaning. One, for the time in which they were written, and another, long-range, esoteric meaning. But this ruse is obviously a feeble attempt to escape critical evaluation. If when we object to an alleged prophecy, the Christian replies that the New Testament writer knew what he is doing, even if we do not, we then leave the realm of reason and enter the domain of faith. The Christian asks us to accept the legitimacy of these prophecies on faith, on the testimony of the person who uses them as prophecies. This permits the New Testament writers to extract any Old Testament passage at will, distort it beyond recognition, and then claim the sanction of divine inspiration. In this event, prophecy is reduced to arbitrary decree and thus loses its argumentative impact. Does everyone see why I love this book by George H. Smith? He also attacks very vehemently the negative attributes of God as being just mindless, you know. So I like quoting him. I love this book. It should be pretty cheap if you get it on Kindle or something like that, or, or even a hard copy. It's been out for a while since the 80s or the 60s or something like that. But George H. Smith's point is this that we cannot point to these prophecies as legitimate prophecies. These, these don't predict anything. In context of the Old Testament, they don't predict anything. And if they are legitimate prophecies, you know, the New Testament writers could have just picked any random sentence from the Old Testament to try to use similar prophecies. We'd have no way to tell. There's no way that we have any indication that these are prophecies in the original text, which is being quoted in the New Testament. George H. Smith has a point. When I debate non-Christians about the legitimacy of Jesus' prophecies, I don't turn to these Matthew passages. That is a failing endeavor because they will easily, if they have any bit of education, they will see through these attempts to use those prophecies as legitimate prophecies predicting Jesus. Isaiah 53, that's probably a way better one, although there are certain scholars who even think that is more of a near prophecy, like not an actual prophecy about Jesus. So, so how does a Christian respond to George H. Smith? He's got really good points. We turn to the text. Emmanuel was the sign for a king at that time, and the kid was born in the next chapter. It's not like this kid wasn't born and we're waiting for him to be born still, something like that. This sign happened as predicted to the people for whom it was predicted. It's, it's done and gone. It's, the sign is over. The solution is to put ourselves back in first century Jewish mindset. How did the Jews use prophecy? How did Matthew use prophecy? How did Paul use prophecy? How did they use these, these passages from the Old Testament? Paul does this too. 
Often, you know, the remnant in the Old Testament, that's the remnant of Israel. God's going to come and he's going to destroy a bunch of Jews. And the ones left over, this is the remnant. And in Romans 9, Paul says that there's this remnant, but those are the Gentiles. And he tries to make passages in Hosea about Gentiles. They're just not about Gentiles. They're about the Jews. So why does he think his audience, his hostile audience, the, his audience in Romans, they didn't believe what he was trying to tell them? He has to write in very precise terms. He has to build a detailed argument. He uses very strong terminology. I am not wine. Why would they believe him when he's quoting, doing these near quotes of the Old Testament and he's, he's switching around the concepts? He's changing the concepts. It's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. Here's the answer. Ancient Jewish culture was not Greek. It, they weren't looking for Nostradamus predictions of the future. Oh, you know, World War One's going to happen like this. This many people are going to die. This exact number. Now, they were looking for patterns, trends. They were looking for parallel events because things work cyclically. Things are going to work in patterns. And so... What the ancient Jews did, how they thought, was they looked at the Old Testament and they looked at modern events and they drew parallels. They said, well, this happened back then, this is happening now, and they're kind of parallel, they kind of fit together, and this is a sign that things are happening. This is the sign of, you know, redemption maybe, or in Paul's case, this is a sign that God is turning to this new remnant. It's not quite the same remnant that he's talking about in the Old Testament, but it's a, it's a similar concept. And this is how God is doing that now. And what this is understood as is ecbatic prophecy. Jesse Morell has a pretty good article and it is titled, Does God Blind the Eyes and Harden the Hearts of the Unbelievers? Is this predestination? Jesse Morell writes, first of all, it needs to be understood that there's a difference between telic and abatic when it comes to scriptures being fulfilled. When it says that it might be fulfilled, that does not mean that this specific event was prophesied by Isaiah, but only so that such scripture is fulfilled by this specific event through applicability or similarity. When a scripture is in the telic sense, it refers to a specific prophecy, but when it is used in the ecbatic sense, it refers to events that fulfill passages through parallelism. Albert Barnes, this is Jesse Morrell again, Albert Barnes said, might be fulfilled. And this is talking about John 12, 37 through 40. Albert Barnes says, might be fulfilled, that the same effect should occur which occurred in the time of Isaiah. This does not mean that the Pharisees rejected Christ in order that the prophecy of Isaiah should be fulfilled, but that by their rejection of him, the same thing had occurred which took place in the time of Isaiah. These are parallel concepts. People are using ancient terminology, ancient phrases, ancient events to describe modern events. It's not like I'm just making this stuff up. I was accused of that by a Calvinist. You're just making these things up. Okay, well, first of all, you could yourself just turn to the passages and read them. You could see what I am saying is true. You could literally see it. Your conclusions that you're placing on the text are just totally unsupported by what you're reading. Yeah, it's just reading comprehension. Seriously. But let's turn to Dr. Michael Heiser. And he has an interesting article called My Take on Matthew's Use of Hosea 11.1. 1. 
And I'm going to read just a paragraph from that. Matthew's gospel was written decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Why is this important? For some simple reasons. Matthew, along with other disciples, had heard the story of Jesus' birth many times as they had spent their time with Jesus' mother before and after the resurrection. They were a group. They transmitted all these stories orally as they preached. When Matthew heard Mary, who stored the events of the birth of Jesus in her heart, tell the disciples about the miraculous circumstances of the birth of Jesus, including the trip to and back from Egypt, it clicked in his head. Wow, the birth was a sign and a literal salvation all in one. He was instantly reminded of verses like Hosea 11.1. 1. Remember Hosea 11.1 1 was quoted by George H. Smith. So this is Michael Heisner. He's basically responding to the George H. Smiths of the world. And the way that the Messiah and the nation were identified with each other in his Bible elsewhere, the Old Testament. Seeing the points of analogy was led by the Spirit to note the connection in his gospel. There is no need to view Hosea 11.1 as a prophecy that pointed to Jesus. Rather, a gospel writer saw an analogy and interpreted that analogy as something God intended to be made clear once Messiah had come. We could consider it a typology or simple analogy. Either way, it made sense to Matthew, and I think it's hard for us now to see the sense of it. It's not magic. It's applying the very human circumstances of Matthew's life to the issue and imagining that it would have taken very little, the birth story, for him to see an analogous relationship. So that's Michael Heiser, and he's saying, yeah, this is not being used as a prophecy. The author originally in Isaiah, he didn't mean it as prophecy, but what the authors of the New Testament did is they took Old Testament passages and they just kind of applied themselves to events nowadays. So it's not like those Christians who George H. Smith encountered that said, there's a double meaning in the text. Oh, the original writer, he had this face value meaning and then the super secret meaning. And that was a super secret prophecy of the future. And only the New Testament writers, they saw these super secret prophecies and they wrote about these super secret prophecies and we endorse their super secret prophecies. George H. Smith says, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. And the more rational approach is that these are just parallels. And the authors of the New Testament, they know that these this is not like a super secret prophecy. They, they, they can read. They can go back to these Old Testament texts. They know what's happening in these Old Testament texts. They just, they're not biblically illiterate. But they're using the common thing that the Jews do, that, how they thought. They were applying Old Testament concepts to events in the modern days. That's what they did. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to an atheist, an atheist biblical scholar, Dr. Joel M. Hoffman, and he wrote The Bible Doesn't Say That. And that, that's a decent book. I suggest people, they could read it or they could read his blog. He's got a lot of the same topics on his blog that he has in his book. One of our guests, Michael Karzak, he doesn't much care for Joel M. Hoffman, and he has a review of the book. You could try to find that. You're only going to find it through gated resources, probably a JSTOR article. But not a big fan, but I think there's a lot of things that's in this book that is useful. Let's turn to what happens to prophecies in the New Testament. Joel Hoffman. Hoffman goes over the Matthew 1, 18 through 22, that prophecy. And then he talks about John 19, 24. And then he writes this. Both of these seem to be cases of prophecies coming true. But the Greek word in each case is plyro. And while fulfill is one common translation of that verb, I don't think it's accurate. 
we find a particularly helpful example in James 2.23. Thus the scripture was fulfilled. Plero. That says, Abraham believed God, and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So this is James, and he's quoting the example of Abraham and God and righteousness. That's funny how James uses this verse, because he uses this passage, and he uses it in pretty much an opposite sense. This is just me editorializing right now. He uses it in a basically opposite sense that Paul uses, and I cover this in one of my articles. But back to the text in question. Hoffman writes, The theological argument in James 2, commonly summarized as faith without works is dead, is complex, but the outline of these few verses is easy enough to follow. I'm going to kind of skip forward a little bit. We should be clear. Genesis 15.6 is not a prophecy. It describes the past, so it cannot come true in the future any more than it rained yesterday can come true in the future. Yet we find the Greek word plyro here, and most translations therefore blindly translate scripture was fulfilled, even though this is not the case of a prophecy being fulfilled at all. Rather, this is the case of using the Old Testament more generally to demonstrate a point, as if to say our current point matches the text in the Old Testament. We have to remember here, this is not a Christian talking. This is a Joel Hoffman, not a Christian, and he's explaining to Christians how to salvage these texts. He's explaining to them the ancient Jewish mentality, and how these texts were used in context. I mean, is, is he biased to try to salvage the Bible? Is he, is he biased against the arguments of George H. Smith? I don't think so. Jo, Joel Hoffman goes on to say, Using a text in this way is so common that it now has a technical name, proof text. A proof text is a text that is used to demonstrate a point. This isn't a proof in the modern scientific sense, though. The proof text doesn't have to prove anything, and the proof text doesn't even have to mean the same thing as what it's demonstrating. The point of using proof text, it was considered better to use words of the scripture than to invent new ones, even if the words of the scripture were taken out of context. The whole notion of text matching and of a proof text is generally foreign to our modern way of thinking, but it was central to how the texts were understood 2,000 years ago. In James 2, the proof text is Genesis 15.6, but quite clearly, this doesn't mean that Genesis 15.6 predicts James 2, or even that James was meant to indicate that Genesis 15.6 was a prophecy that came true. We know because Genesis 15.6 isn't a prophecy at all. Rather, James is using a passage in the Old Testament to demonstrate a point. He's using a proof text, and this proof text is introduced with the Greek word plyro. So a better translation might be, this matches scriptures, or this accords with scripture, or even this complements scripture. Hoffman gets it. Hoffman understands that this near quoting, this quasi quoting, this parallelism, that was like a common Jewish thing that they did all the time. And modern day Calvinists, especially, I debate these Calvinists, and they say, oh, all these things are, are, are literal prophecies. And here's what just happened. And it was so funny to me. I'm talking to this guy and he's talking about how the New Testament uses prophecy. And so I point out this Romans 9 passage where Paul uses the term remnant. And Paul's referring to Gentiles, but his Hosea passage is about Jews. That's the context of Hosea. It's about the Jews returning to God. And I said, you know, what about this text? Who is each text referring to, you know, in context? Figure out the context. Do they match? How is he using this prophecy? 
and Calvinists, of course, they don't want to answer these things because it's pretty plainly obvious that this is not like a literal quotation in context of an Old Testament passage. It's just not. So what does he do? He turns, <laughs> this is funny, to Matthew 1, 18 through 22. The prophecy, you know, we, are, we already talked about this. This is the prophecy of Emmanuel. And he says, well, let's, let's talk about this prophecy instead. I'm like, okay, let's talk about this prophecy. Turn back to Isaiah 7. What is this prophecy referring to? It's not referring to Jesus. Your own proof text, the proof text that you use to prove your point, proves the opposite. It's like, do you, get, do you even think about these things before you say them? It's just incredible to me. So who do we have so far? We got Jesse Morrell, well-known open theist. I even have an article on it. I don't know if I consider myself like a well-known open theist. Maybe. We got Michael Heiser. He's really well-known. And then we got Joel Hoffman. And all of them are saying the same thing. That there's these different types of prophecies. And they're not exact prophecies. They're just parallels. And so, you know, I'm looking for more people who agree with this view. I put it into Google. And there's, there's this book by Milton Spencer Terry. And it's called Biblical Hermeneutics. And this actually goes over ecbatic and telic prophecies as well. Just kind of talking about the differences between it. And here's a funny quote. This is, this is, this is who George H. Smith is referring to. And the author, Terry, he says, Bengal, commenting on the words in Matthew one twenty two, observes, Whenever this phrase occurs, we are bound to recognize the authority of the evangelists, and however dull our own perception may be, to believe that the event that they mention does not merely chance correspond with some ancient form of speech, but was one which had been predicted and which the divine truth was pledged to bring to pass at the commencement of the new dispensation. This is the ideas that George H. Smith has encountered. He's encountered Christians who think like this, who think that this is like some spiritual text with some spiritual hidden meaning that only the gospel writer understood. And if we turn back, we're not going to understand it because we don't have this spiritual enlightenment that the gospel writers had. And George H. Smith, he, he, he recoils at this idea because it's so arbitrary and it's, it's, it's so just made up. Where is this coming from? Is this biblical scholarship that we're talking about? Is this idea, is that described in the Bible that these are mystical, you know, predictions of future events? That There's just almost infinite leeway that you get if you want to try to use these texts as that mystical prediction of the future. It just doesn't work. It's not a rational position. And this book really shows that some biblical scholars, they understand telic and enigmatic prophecy, but they are just so focused in what they want to bring to the text that they're just going to kind of force these ideas onto the text where, where it's not warranted at all. And I'll tell you what they're doing. It's just like James White when he wants to use the I am passages with Jesus saying I am. He wants to use that as some sort of Jesus claiming to be the I am of Exodus 3.14. That's just not what's happening. It's just Jesus saying that he is the Messiah. That's, 
that's the idea that Jesus is communicating. It's not some mystic. It's not like every time someone says "I am," they're they're talking about some metaphysical nature of God, and that's that's what James White thinks about the Exodus three fourteen passage. He thinks it's all crazy metaphysics, and then Jesus was claiming to be those metaphysics, even though he acknowledges that Jesus was not omniscient. It's just this weird view that he has, but it's not like that. It, and he wants to take those passages as that. And one of his arguments is literally that if we give up those ideas, those prophecies, then we're giving up arguments for Jesus as God. That's his argument. His argument is not based in a textual analysis. It's based on the moralistic fallacy that, oh, we don't kind of like what's going to happen if we give up these arguments. So we're going to try to just salvage these arguments. And they might be bad arguments, but we really need them to prove our other theology over elsewhere. That's a terrible reason to try to salvage an argument. That's a terrible reason to say, let's hold on to this and just discard other views, discard more rational views, because we really need this as an argument, because we can't argue as forcefully without these texts. Terrible argument. Moralistic fallacy. Moralistic fallacy. And I'm sure there's other writers who talk about the differences between these two types of prophecy. I'm sure that Gordon Olson, I don't know very much of Gordon Olson's work, but I'm sure he makes the distinction because all the people who really like him, they really understand the difference. And they really understand the arguments that surround this idea. I don't know. If anyone wants to send those Gordon Olson references to me, I'll definitely look at them. The last thing I want to cover is how different authors of the Bible use the exact same instances, and they use it in different fashions. And we find this in the contrast between James and Paul. I'm going to read a quick passage by Riza Aslan. He's a Muslim scholar who wrote Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And he writes, James offers a telling example, one that demonstrates that he was specifically refuting Paul in his epistle. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? James says, alluding to the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac at the behest of the Lord. Genesis 2, 9-14. This is James now. You see how faith went hand in hand with Abraham's works. How it was through his works that his faith was made complete. Thus what the scripture says was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, James 2.23. What makes this example so telling is that it's the exact same one Paul uses in his letters when making the exact opposite argument. What then are we to say about Abraham our father according to the flesh, Paul writes. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, though not before God. Rather, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Aslan says, James may not have been able to read any of Paul's letters, but he was obviously familiar with Paul's teaching about Jesus. The last years of his life were spent dispatching his own missionaries to Paul's congregations in order to correct what he viewed as Paul's mistakes. The sermon that became his epistle was just another attempt by James to curb Paul's influence. Judging by Paul's own epistles, James' efforts were successful, as many among Paul's congregations seemed to have turned their backs on him in favor of the teacher's from Jerusalem. People could take Aslan with a grain of salt. I mean, you know, he's a Muslim scholar. He's not a Christian. So figure out what he's saying. He's saying Paul and James 
use the exact same example, but they use it for opposite points. Paul talks about Abraham being justified by faith alone. And James uses it with like this faith is hand in hand with works. And for this reason, scholars think that James's letter was written after the ministry of Paul started and that elements of it are a response to Paul's ministry just because of the divergent use of the same example. But how is it that James and Paul can use the same example for different purposes? It's because this near quoting was common. It's not like one was wrong and the other was right. For people who think that Paul and James were preaching the exact same thing, you're going to have to do some gymnastics to figure out what's going on here. And and believe me, I've read plenty of stuff that have tried to do that. So if if you don't think this is a valid example, yeah, that's fine. But, but this biblical scholar, Riza Aslan, he sees it and he points it out. This, this is a problem. And as Christians, we need to address it and we need to try to understand it. I think the best way to understand this is through dispensationalism. James and Paul had separate ministry. James to the circumcision and Paul to the uncircumcision. Sometimes those overlapped and sometimes those caused tension. And we really need to pay attention to what's happening in both Acts 15 and Acts 21, the dynamics between Paul and James. And Peter kind of acts as an intermediary, kind of acts as a go-between. If we read Galatians, that's fairly evident. But there's our solution. People could use the exact same passage for opposite effect because near-quoting was a real thing. And the Jews believed in this near-quoting, this parallelism, this this historic retelling, this historic cyclical event. They believed in it, and that's how they used prophecy. It wasn't this Greek idea. It wasn't this, I predict seven people will die in three minutes, and then it happens exactly like, no, it's... That's not what they're looking for. They, they didn't have this weird mindset that the modern Christians have where all prophecy needs to come true to a T. And, you know, it's, it's not the Jewish mindset. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the companion Facebook page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.